Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with a woman who found her husband had led a double life, was murdered, and forced to change her life completely in the road to recovery. We're going to talk about post-traumatic growth, how grief from murder differs from grief from illness. And as you know, I'm a retired police sergeant. We're going to discuss in some ways how law enforcement officers are similar to homicide survivors and how that affects them. I'm Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Double Life, Murder, and Recovery. My guest in this episode is Dr. Jan Canty, a psychologist, an author, a podcaster, and a survivor. Welcome to the show, Dr. Canty. Thank you for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. What a unique and amazing but traumatic journey you've been on in your life. Yeah, if it wasn't happening to me, I doubt it would ever happen. <laughs> well, you know, you you kind of you said your life was divided into before and after segments. So, if it's okay with you, let's get started with uh, the before segment. Yeah, the before segment was pretty positive. I was born to my obviously my mom and dad in Detroit. And I have a twin sister and older brother. I have a twin sister and an older brother. We had a very conventional middle-class upbringing, went to school, had friends, lots of friends. There was 25 kids just on our own block. (laughs) So there was hordes of kids. We were outside all the time. It seemed like my dad's rule was you have to play without a plug or a battery. (laughs) So we were outside a lot with sports and rigging leaves and having bonfires and playing Monopoly tournaments. And it was a lot of fun. And then... uh, Went to high school, graduated high school, and then I wanted to try my hand at college, which was not encouraged back in that era for females, particularly in my family. My parents neither went to college and they had the attitude, look, if you want to work, that's great. What's important to us is that you do it honestly and faithfully, but you don't need a college education to work. So that's on you if you want to do that. Otherwise, you can join the Army, go to Peace Corps, you know, become a waitress. uh, But we're not paying the tab for college. That's that's a frill. You grew up in the Detroit area, correct? Yeah, right. So your dad came from a working class. Yeah. My dad worked for Ford Motor Company. He was a product cost analyst and my mom was a homemaker. My brother was into cars big time and had a 32 hot rod and a lot of dinner conversations hovered around cars. But anyway, when I got older, I wanted to go to college and my parents said, that's on you if you want to figure that out. So I went to a community college for the first couple of years because that's all I could afford. And then I transferred to a four-year university in downtown Detroit, Wayne State University. And unfortunately, I got a scholarship that helped the first semester, but it was very difficult financially for me. I ended up selling my car one term just for tuition. I lived in a three-story walk-up studio apartment. It was $80 a month. (laughs) And I walked to school because I couldn't afford the bus. It was not a safe area, but I was very determined to get my degree. There was automatic weapons noises at night. I would I placed my bed on the floor away from the window so gunshots could not come through the window and reach me. I didn't list my name by the front entrance. I was always trying to get home before dark. There was a couple times I did not make it when in you know Detroit winter comes and it gets dark early about 4:30 and there was a couple times that snow was so deep the buses could not run so I had to walk home which I didn't like doing because it was three miles and it was a sketchy area but I dressed like a boy and tried to do it with determination and I made it okay (laughs) so at any rate it was during my undergraduate years that I applied for a job working 
for a psychologist by the name of Al Canty, who worked in the Fisher Building, which was nearby. He needed a typist for his book. And so I applied, got the job. That's how I met my future husband. So you, when you went to college, did you go to college to be a psychologist in the beginning or did you pick something else? No. Initially, I wanted to write children's books and I took a course uh, called uh, Children's Literature. And one of the books was about children and how they think and how they learn. And it was written by a psychologist. It was called The Magic Years. And it really impressed me. And so I decided to double major in in psychology and English. And I thought maybe I'd write children's books and maybe work with them clinically. In the end, I dropped, I mean, I did complete the two degree, the two majors, but I never worked with children. I only work with adults. And I've never lost my interest in writing. That was always in the back of my mind, but I ended up becoming a psychologist. So, and that's where you met your your uh, husband at the time. You met him there. You right. actually worked for him. Yes, I was his typist. He was 18 years older than me, divorced. And um, I found him to be bright and he didn't have airs about him at all. Uh, he was very encouraging of my education, which nobody Nobody had been to up until that point in time, including the school counselors, my parents, nobody. I didn't know anybody that had been to college except for my school teachers, and I was not particularly impressed with any of them. So it was meant a lot to me that somebody with his training and education had believed in me that I was capable of getting a bachelor's degree. And he was very positive that way. And eventually we started dating. And and about two years later, we got engaged and married. And we were married for 11 years before he was killed. During that time, I completed my bachelor's, my master's, my doctorate, and my postdoctoral fellowship. And throughout that time... Can I ask you... um, Sure. Did him being a psychologist help help motivate you into the psychology field, or is that something you kind of picked beforehand? I had generally wanted to do it beforehand, but he made it much more tangible, much more realistic and doable. I felt that if he can do it, I can do it. And and he knows the steps. And it just made it real for me because the, up until I got into the field, I really didn't know any psychologists personally. And it's a really competitive environment. So a lot of the professors were not particularly helpful in terms of showing me the ropes. They were more like, just do your job, get your degree. And he was very supportive throughout my training until I wanted to go for my doctorate. And he kind of stepped back and was less enthusiastic. And I said to him, we know my advisor says tuition never gets cheaper and it's best to go when you're in the in the throes of, you know, the pattern of going to school. And it and that even made it more that way when I finished when I wanted to apply for my postdoctoral fellowship. He was not at all supportive of that, which was really a change for him. Yeah, I know. Yeah, obviously, in the beginning, we talked about him leading a double life. Did you see any indication of a, of a different life at that time that he may have been led? What I saw when I entered my doctoral program, because I indicated he was older than me, and what I saw when I entered my doctoral program is he was more preoccupied and quiet, tired. Uh, and I attributed it all to his age, being older than me. And I was encouraging him to get a physical, and he wouldn't do that. And so, yeah, I saw a change, but I misread what it was about. I, I really never attributed it to the fact that I was surpassing him in his education. That turns out to be the issue, but at the time I didn't know it. Yeah, unfortunately, sometimes that takes place, especially in the environment where women should, this is not my view, of course, 
you know, that women could be, like you said earlier, be a housewife or go work for a restaurant mm -hmm. or be a waitress or something like that. And you're achieving a higher standard and breaking the glass ceiling in that regard. I'm sure created mm -hmm. some type of issues that um, were unseen. Right. So okay. after you graduated, did you graduate before he got murdered? I got my PhD before he was murdered, and I was two months shy of completing my postdoctoral fellowship. On that point. So let's kind, of, let's kind of talk about the after, because understanding the after also can help you open up the doors to what you found out and discovered later about him leading a double life True. and how it changed your True. life, uh, dramatically changed your life in the long run. So let's talk about after. So what exactly, what happened to change your life? It was pretty... Dramatic. It was not a gradual transition at all. I except that I, like I said, he was more reserved. But other than that, things we were in our eleventh year of marriage, just about. And I was waiting for him to come home. This is in July of 1985, and I was watching a three-hour special on television. So I lost track of time. And there was a very bad storm outside for July. It was hail, winds, thunder, lightning torrent of rain. Anyway, I was watching this show and I looked up and I expected him for dinner because we had talked earlier about him being home around seven and it was closer to 10 o'clock. And I'm like, whoa, he is way overdue, which was not like him. And this is before cell phones. This is before internet. So I thought maybe it was the storm that delayed him. Maybe his car bogged down in a water or something. So when he had not reached home by midnight, I called my neighbor next door to see if he would accompany me to go downtown to look in his office to see maybe if he was inside or had a heart attack. I didn't know. So he did. He was very nice about dropping whatever, you know, he just gotten home from a big event. And so he took me downtown and he wasn't there. And, and at that time, you had to sign in and out of the tower at six o'clock. And so we knew he had left at 630, but we didn't know where he went. And I went home. The next morning, I tried to report him missing at the substation across the street from his office building in downtown Detroit. And they were exceedingly rude to me. They they had a pint-sized television on. They were watching a boxing match. I remember that when I walked in. And they didn't look at me. They kept looking at the boxing match and talking to me and saying, well, it's not 24 hours. We can't take the report. Basically, go away. And, and, and they said, and then they kept calling me lady. Lady, we can't take the report. It hasn't been 24 hours late. It really irritated me. And I said, my name is not lady. My name is Dr. Canty. And he turned and glared at me and said, well, Dr. Canty, why don't you check the morgue? And I just about fainted. And I left. Wow. So I stopped at my local PD where my house was, which is a different city, because I figured, well, maybe he... I could report him missing here in, in the city where I live. And they took the report, but that was about the end of it. Nothing came of it. So a couple days later, I called my mother-in-law and said, you know, he never came home. I don't know what's going on. He's so punctual. And she had connections in the Detroit Police Department. So unbeknownst to me, she called them and they sprung into action. And in the, in the meantime, I called WJR Radio and asked them to make a bulletin to see it was whereabouts. I had his license plate number, and they did immediately. What's WJR Radio? WJR Radio. It's in the uh, it's a Detroit news station, and they broke in and said, you know, this guy's missing. Here's his license plate and car make and model. And if you see him, please notify the police. So that went on for another week. Nothing came of it except the media. <laughs> they were relentless. They 
they bugged me at my house and my office. They were very intrusive. So uh, about a week later, I get a call from Detective Marlis Landeros, who turns out played a pivotal role in my ability to keep my wits about me through this whole mess. And she said to me, would you please come down to police headquarters and you can bring your parents if you want to. So we packed up and went down to Detroit police headquarters and we, she asked me to come to the fifth floor. And that didn't mean anything to me at the time. So we went up to the fifth floor and then in the directory, I saw that's the homicide division. And that was my first glaring warning that this was not going to end well. So she met us there and uh, Inspector Gil Hill was the lead person of the homicide division at that point in time. He's, by the way, as an aside, he was the detective Todd in Beverly Hills Cop movies. He had just finished doing that stint when I met him, so I knew what he looked like. And he was very cordial. He was really tall and lean and very few words, very to the point. And uh, I remember, as I, he had a very cramped office, a bunch of file cabinets and an old oak desk. And I remember sitting across from him and I couldn't reach the floor in the chair. My, my toes wouldn't touch the floor. I've, it was a weird feeling. And he started to say something and I knew it was going to be bad news. So I asked him if I could bring my parents in because they were waiting outside. And he said, yeah. And I stood up to get them and he said, no, stay seated. And I just sat there now. And like, okay. <laughs> so basically what he said was, when my parents seated next to me, he said, we have reason to believe that your husband's been murdered, that we don't have his body yet. And he's been seen multiple times in the Cass Corridor, which is a red light district in Detroit. And so at that time, it was like ground central for arms traffic and drugs and prostitution. And this particular year, a police officer I came to know by the name of Officer uh, Bando told me that even though the official number of homicides was 780, he expected it was closer to 900 because there were so many unreported homicides in the area from deliberate drug overdoses. So they were treading water. And they didn't have time to hold my hand. They didn't have time to do anything, basically. So they basically said to me, you know, this is what we think. And we have good reason to think this. We'll be in touch. Is that, is that number so, a year or is that number? Yep. Yep. And what time One of year. year was it? This was in July of 1985. So between January and July, they had like over 700. No, it turns up the whole years that year was 790. 790. So the year of 1985 was about 790. So I went home, we went home, and like I said, the media was just relentless. So my dad took charge of the front door, and I changed my phone number multiple times. My mom took charge of keeping us fed and doing laundry because I had dinner prepared for the night Al was supposed to come home. And when my parents finally arrived at my house days later, later, they came from Phoenix. The meat was still on the stove. I hadn't even noticed it. I hadn't slept. I hadn't changed my clothes. It was like days like it was like one long day. It wasn't like three or four days. It was one long day. So my mom walked in. She's like, whoa, what's that smell? Because, it, you know, it's July without air conditioning. And I mean, that's how out of it I was is the point I'm trying to make. So they desperately <laughs> were worried about me and I needed them. And they jumped to the chance to help. And they were great. So the following week, 
after they were with me, we were keeping tabs on the news. And my dad was kind of filtering it for me. I told him I didn't want to know what was in the news. And he did because he said, knowledge is power. We got to know what's going on. And I said, I can't handle anymore. So what he would do is he would watch it and then he would occasionally tell me what he saw. If it was redundant, he'd let it go. So he kept me kind of informed. And then the next week we were called back down again by Detective Marlis Landeros, back down to the Detroit police headquarters to meet with him and his team. And we walked into his office and there was about five detectives there. They they looked huge to me and they were just standing behind him. They looked like linebackers to me and they didn't say a word. And he just asked me again to sit down and Detective Landeros was there and he said, he was very man of very few words. He said, we have your husband's body in the morgue and we need you to identify him. And this was like Sunday at seven o'clock in the morning. So I said, OK. And it was close by. Detective Marlis Landeros drove us to the morgue, which she did not have to do. She stood. She she told me what I was going to see, which was important because he'd been dismembered. She told me what to expect. And my dad multiple times asked if he could do it for me because he was worried about the impact on me. And they said, no, she has to do it because this is for trial purposes. And it's also to reinforce the idea that he's never coming home. So I stood up to go back to this booth, I I would call it a chamber. And I couldn't get my feet to move. It was like they were glued to the floor. So eventually she put one arm under my arm and hit my dad, lifted me on the other side, and they brought me into this viewing booth. I don't know what you call it, but there it was. And she said to me, all you have to do is say yes or no. It's him. You can't nod. We need you to verbally say yes or no. I said, that sounds pretty straightforward. So I walked in there and the stench was overwhelming because he'd been buried for a week in northern Michigan in a bog owned by the University of Michigan Biologic Station for roadkill. And the reason he was buried there is because it obviously it would disguise his scent. And it was used for the study of scientific study of mosquitoes. So that's where the investigators unearthed his remains and flew them back to the Detroit morgue that that night at midnight. And I was there a few hours later in the early morning hours. So they brought Al's head out. They asked me to say yes or no. And at first I couldn't speak. So they started the procedure over again. And I said yes. And they detached me from that spot. And we were starting to go out the front door and the media was just hovering. And I remember this sounds bizarre. And I'm not given to dramatic inclinations this way, but it's how I perceived it. I was, like I said, with my parents and Detective Landeros and I looked out, the. there was glass in the windows of the doors, and I remember looking ahead, and the reporters were out there, and one of them had a big camera mounted on a tripod, but in my state of fatigue, in my mind, when I glanced out that window, it looked like a machine gun aimed at me. That's how it felt. Anyway, Detective Landero saw what was outside, and she spun me around, and we went out a back exit, and she took us back to our car, and we drove home. And... And the media were waiting and my dad took care of them again. So the next big event was this funeral. Can, can I interrupt you for just a second? Yeah. What, the, the media, obviously, with that many murders that had taken place, what made this more significant to the media? There's, it fits squarely with the research that I've read about which stories the media cherry picks when they talk about homicide. It involved a huge fall from grace 
from somebody well-known in the community. It involved a sex angle because the couple that murdered him, she was a prostitute and he was a pimp. It involved money. And it involved a, quote, innocent person that's blindsided by the whole thing. I think that all coupled with the fact that his father used to work for the Detroit Police Department as a psychologist, in quotes, he didn't have a doctorate, but he called himself a psychologist. I think all of those ingredients together and his family was very well known in the area. His mother was on the Wayne State University Board of Directors. And uh, I think they just, I don't know, it took on a life of its own. The other thing I did not realize till later was that one of the reporters that kept beating the, the drum about it was a reporter that wanted to write his first book. So any little development, he had access to making it part of the Sunday news section. So it was just constant. So at the funeral, which I didn't even want, I told my mother-in-law, if I was to have it my way, I wouldn't even have a funeral. But for you, I'll do it for his an extended family, I understand we have to do it, but I want it small, intimate, quick, and over with. And she arranged the whole thing, and I went an hour and a half early, partly because it was really hot out, but partly because I just wanted to be by myself for just a few minutes to collect my thoughts. And within an hour, 300 people were there. Wow. The media trucks were parked out in front with satellite dishes. I went to The Undertaker on two occasions and said, I do not want them in here. Do not let them in here. They have no right And I got no assurances that they would do that. Instead, they said things like, well, it's a public sidewalk. We can't tell them to keep out. And I said, no, but it's a private building and you can keep them out of the private building. I don't want them in here. And at this point in time, I was shifting out of being frightened to being angry. You know, this is two, three weeks later. And he was not honoring my request. And the media was extremely intrusive. They did not even conceal their activity. They they gossiped among each other. They jotted notes. They brought in big video cameras parched on their shoulders. And when the service was over, which was only 20 minutes long, I got up to leave and they put it within inches, the camera within inches of my nose. My friend put his hand over the camera lens and I ducked out the back door and went home and locked the door. It was just a media circus. It was awful. So then it, we put the house on the, I put the house on the market because I didn't want to be there I didn't want the house in the first place, so I was glad to get rid of it. And it was hard to do because Michigan law then and now states that if there is a crime, a serious crime that involves the owner of the house, you have to disclose that information to a potential buyer in case they're superstitious. Even and if the if murder they, didn't happen in the even house. Even if it's not on the premises. And if you fail to do that, they can rescind the offer at any time in the future. Oh. So that devalued the house. And, you know, so I had a big garage sale. Uh, I was getting ready to downsize. And my parents eventually went back home to Phoenix. Then fall came and I was subpoenaed in late November for the preliminary exam hearing, which I didn't know what that meant, but I, I knew what a subpoena meant. So I showed up and the defendants were there. It's the first time I'd seen them in person. I'd only seen them on the news. And as I said earlier, I was pretty angry by this point in time. Hey, can I ask Detective, you, can I ask you yeah, this go ahead. real quick? Um, so the, leading up to that, um, obviously they knew that he was leading a double life at that point. And the double right. life entailed. Uh, what did it entail? Him being, he, he, he pretended to be Dr. Miller, a physician who worked at Detroit Receiving Hospital and who was a widower. 
none of which was true. And they just knew he had money to burn. I don't think they cared what his history was as long as he was giving them money, which he did hand over fist. He met John Carl Fry Sr. and Don Marie Spence, and that's the couple who killed him. That's the couple who's he interacted with for 18 months in this double life, and he supported their lifestyle. He paid their rent. He bought them cars. He buyed them drugs, bought them drugs. And in hindsight, I understand why. At the time, it made no sense to me, but looking back on it with years of thinking about it, I think what happened was he still needed an audience. He needed to be the authority. He needed to be Big Daddy, the guy who has things to offer people. And I'd outgrown him, at least educationally, if not emotionally. So he turned to other people who still needed him. And that guarantee was that he had the purse strings. And that was the um, the connection for them to make an arrest, basically. Was, yes, was the- because their accomplice, who was McMaster's, uh, he was the guy that helped bury, transport and bury the body, saw what was the writing on the wall and turned himself in with the promise of immunity if he could lead them to the police to the body in northern Michigan at the University of Michigan Biologic Station. Had he not done that, I don't think they would have ever solved it unless one of them cracked, and I don't see that happening. They're pretty tough characters. <laughs> so at the subpoena was the first time I'd, I mean, I was subpoenaed to go to the preliminary exam, and that's the first time I'd seen them in person. And I was so angry at that point. I remember the courtroom was very crowded, and there was two security checks, one at the front door, which was routine. Everybody that went in to that building had to go through that. But the judge ordered a secondary weapons or security check at the door room to the courtroom, too, because the defendant was known to have been uh, related to or connected with other homicides in Detroit. And he was concerned that he would you know, blab about that, that somebody might kill him in the courtroom. You know, for our listeners, so you understand what a preliminary exam is or preliminary hearing in some states, it is actually a a session in court that determines whether or not there's enough evidence to carry forward in a trial. So when we talk about a preliminary exam or preliminary hearing, that's, that's, you know, where we're at with that. Right. I was the first person that was called to be a witness and, Detective Landeros was there. I don't think that was required. I don't know about that. But she was there. And she had a real steadiness about her that I leaned on. I looked at her as if she was my guide in this wilderness into this uncharted territory. She had a presence about her that I immediately trusted her, liked her, would follow whatever she suggested. She was very professional. So at the last second, the defense counsel wanted to stipulate to my testimony, meaning they wouldn't want to have me on the witness stand, just accept whatever I was going to say. This was in the chambers of the judge. And the prosecuting attorney definitely wanted me on the witness stand. In fact, I think that was the major reason why I was asked to identify Al's remains to give them a reason to put me on the witness stand. And it was over overturned, so that the word overruled, so that I was I went uh, proceeded to go and be on the witness stand. At any rate, when I was on my way to the front of the courtroom, which was very busy and crowded, I saw the defendants to my left at the defendant table, 
and I pretended like I was being jostled by the crowd and I wasn't, I wasn't jostled, but I slapped my hand on, their, on the defendant's table to kind of say, I'm here. I was so mad. So I got to the front of this courtroom. They swore me in. It was very quick. I was probably in and out in 10 minutes. One of the weird questions that the prosecuting attorney asked me was, did I give anybody permission to dissect my husband's body? And I remember thinking, dissect, that's a medical term. They dismembered him, but I didn't say that. I remember looking at the defendants, almost staring at the defendants while I was on the witness stand. They wouldn't look at me, which gave me a measure of, of delight. John was huge. He looked like Mr. Clean on the disinfectant bottle, except he had bad hygiene and a lot of tattoos. And she was small and frail and younger and looked kind of grayish green and bored. And I remember thinking, she's got liver problems because of the color of her skin is terrible. At any rate, I was in and out of there in no time. What followed, I don't know. I didn't go back and I decided not to go to the trial because nothing that would happen in that trial would change my life. I'd still be a widow. I'd still have a house to sell. I'd still have money problems. I still have the media at my door. Nothing was going to change, and I was not going to be a part of being on display again. So I went to Phoenix to be with my parents for the duration of the trial. I went to a conference out there, and it snowed, <laughs> which was really in Phoenix. <laughs> Wasn't that weird? And nobody knew how to drive. <laughs> They're out there with spatulas cleaning their windshield. <laughs> it was the most bizarre yeah, thing. I, I'm originally from Colorado, so when we first came here, people didn't understand what snow was. <laughs> No. And the first time we moved here, we moved here in 2005, and and it snowed. We're up in, uh, we lived north of Phoenix, way north of Phoenix, like uh, 45 miles north of Phoenix. And it snowed mm -hmm. there, and everybody blamed it on us. <laughs> I say you brought it with you. So uh, that was, the trial was over. They got sentenced. John Carl Fry was sentenced to the harshest penalty he could, which was life without the chance of parole. And she was... I forget the exact name of the law, but it, it's this may not be accurate, precise, but it's having to do with dismembering, not dismembering, disfiguring a body or um, has to do with messing with a body yeah. after it's dead. I, I forget the exact name of the law. So she was given a pretty light sentence. In fact, she was out before I could sell my house, even though she helped transport the remains and lied to the police and sold drugs, et cetera. But anyway was what it was. Ultimately, I finally sold the house. I downsized. I liked where I lived. I got back to work, but the media wouldn't let up. And I physically wasn't well. I lost a lot of weight and I was tired and cranky a lot of the time. So I ended up pulling up stakes and moving away. And I did not speak of it for 30 years. Now, the, great, the trauma that it creates for you, essentially, you have become a victim yourself. So within that arena, from beginning to, to where you're at today, that created like a post-traumatic stress trauma. Would you agree with mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. And that's something that you, um, do you still have, uh, do you still have to manage that to this day? Once in a blue moon. Yeah. I don't think you completely go back to baseline, but it doesn't mean that I don't have joy in my life and that I, I think about it a lot or... Uh, I snap at people anymore. It's more shows up 
something will just tap into it. Here's an example. About four years ago, I was living in a different house than I am now, and I hired someone to trim the bushes at my house while I was at work because they'd gotten bad, you know, out of shape. And my lot line was on the edge of a jogging path and then my neighbor on the other side of the jogging path. So the jogging path went between our houses. And I came home from work and the only thing that was left was the tree trunks. They were gone. The the bushes were gone and I just kind of freaked out. I'm like, I felt so exposed, like I'd lost control of my boundaries and I wanted to get a fence put in like that day. Of course, that's not possible. I could barely sleep until the fence was put in. And I'm all the time this is going on, I'm realizing how irrational that is because a fence doesn't really protect you from somebody that really wants to bother you. It's more in your mind. I understood that, but that's the only thing I could think of to retain a sense of an illusion of control. Another time was when I was in training, I was was going to the gym a lot and I was doing trainings for triathlons. And I went to my locker one morning because I went four times a week and my locker was empty and the lock was cut off. And I'm like, what the heck? So I went to the head of the gym. I said, what's going on? And they said, well, that was an empty locker. There shouldn't have been anything in it. It's not in our database. And I said, your database is wrong. After which they investigated and said, yeah, you're right. Sorry. And they gave me back my broken lock and all my belongings. But it really enraged me. And I'm not an angry person typically, but I think it's, again, another violation of boundaries where you feel out of control. So what I'm trying to say is that it's there under the surface and it takes something specific to jar it loose, but it's not with me day in and day out. Do you think that other individuals that um, have become victims in that sense, uh, they would naturally go through the same type of? Yes. I've talked to enough vets from the military to know that they frequently do perimeter checks. They, If they've been in the Middle East, they frequently have panic attacks when they see a pop can or a beer can at the side of the road at the, road at the curb because that's where IEDs are implanted. I've talked to enough rape victims to know that many women are try to curb panic attacks when they smell bleach because to them it reminds them of the odor of being raped. So there's always this undercurrent. It's subtle and you don't always know when it's going to pop up, but it's there. That's the definition of trauma. It's life altering. Right. Do you think that there are other tools out there that people can manage or help to manage that? What do you recommend? In my podcast, I have talked to enough homicide survivors to know that there are many ways that are probably not thought of as, quote, therapy, that that have benefited people tremendously. There was a young woman I spoke with who found her her brother murdered when she was four. Her mother had killed her brother and and then had her go up and wake him up. It's, you know, that's a whole other story. And then she went into foster care, which screwed her up further, and then group homes, which screwed her up further. And what ultimately straightened her out was going, joining the military. She loved the structure. She craved the, the predictability of it. And she served in the Middle East. She loved learning how to use weapons and taking charge of her life. And she's doing fine. Another police officer I spoke with, he was working as a homicide detective, and he would not speak of 
the things he had seen. And he noticed over the years, he withdrew physically from people. He didn't want to be touched. He, he craved a touch, but he didn't want to be touched. It was this double-edged sword thing. And one night he was walking along this busy street and he looked in the window of this dance studio and he saw people doing the tango and he was mesmerized because they were touching each other. And he signed up for dance lessons and then he got his wife to join him. And then he started crying at home and processing all of the, hom- not all, all, but many of the homicides that were under his skin just because of that breakthrough of dance, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting. Of course. Especially from a police officer. I'm sorry, we are indoctrinated into having no feeling and to not, not acting like a human being whenever we have any, especially, especially in death and suicide or an unattended death, or a homicide, or an accidental death, you create a wall in between that death being a person or part of the job. This is just something that I have to do. Because when you allow that feeling that this is a person come into play, your mentality doesn't allow you to process it the way you need to process it in order to do your job. Right. I think it's the same in healthcare. If you you have a, well, a a arm that breaks and you go into the ER, you don't want the doctor crying and going, oh, that must hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you go see a psychologist, you talk about being raped as a 10-year-old, you don't want them to dissolve in front of you. So I understand that you have to have a foot in being objective. You have to keep your wits about you to think in terms of planning. You know, what does this mean? How am I going to help? What do I need to document? Your mind is occupied elsewhere. And psychology is not unlike law enforcement in that way. But the difference, I think, is that we encourage people to have a mentor to go to 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 unpack it uh, from the get-go. Well, you say that grief differs when somebody's been murdered and, let's say, has an illness or going through cancer or going through um, something that we know is going to take their life. How does that differ? I think there's at least five ways that major, there's a major difference between death from illness and death from homicide. One is the role of stigma. Once you are associated closely with somebody who's been killed, the gossip mill starts. People don't know how to talk to you. They're awkward. They may avoid you in the grocery store, for example. You feel like the poster child for crime in your neighborhood, which you don't typically feel if it's somebody who died of an illness. Another is your involvement with the police. It's a whole nother world, a whole nother culture, new names, buildings, procedures. And you're asked to tell them information at a time when you're running on two cylinders. You haven't slept. You don't know what's going on. And now I know, I did not know then, that 65% of homicides are by people who know the victim well, including family members. So I did not know then, but I know now that they're looking at you as a potential suspect. So you're there being questioned. And that's when I was in Inspector Gil Hill's office. I now realize he was sizing me up. I didn't think of it that way at the time. I just thought he was there to help me find my husband who was missing for straightforward. But he, I, in retrospect, I doubt that. I think that was part of it. But he was probably trying to get a feel for what kind of person I was, too. So the police involvement is another big thing. And with that, of course, the law too, because right about the time, I used to say right about the time the trial starts, but we don't say that anymore because most cases don't go to trial. They go to plea bargains. 95% of homicides go to plea bargains. So right about the time of the plea bargain, 
you're just starting to heal. You're just starting to sleep again. The media's backed off if they were involved in all, at all. And some people get no media attention. But things are starting to quiet down and then it's all revved up again. And you got to go to the, the preliminary exam. I mean, the uh, uh, plea bargain. If it does go to trial, then you have this. You don't have to attend, of course, but if you choose to go, and most people do go to a trial if it's offered, then you have all the ugly evidence to sit through, which is traumatizing by itself. So again, that's something that somebody who has an illness would not be exposed to. Another difference is the involvement of the media. If someone has died of an illness and you see the obituary or maybe a small article, it won't say a lot about personal stuff. It'll say, it won't even give the cause of death. It'll say, you know, they were preceded in death by their aunt and uncle, husband, whatever. Memorial service will be held up, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if your loved one has died of homicide, everything's on the table. Where you live, where you went to school, what car you drive, if you had arguments, if you're involved in drugs, what kind of money you owe, anything and everything is exposed. And in my case, they even had a map how to get to my house. So you had, you basically changed your life completely. It was flipped upside down. The media was relentless. They had no respect for boundaries whatsoever. Um, Another thing is, of course, the, the potential and likelihood of developing at least acute stress disorder, if not full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder, which most of the time you would not get from an illness. And um, there's also, though, the potential for developing something we don't talk enough about, which is post-traumatic growth. And that is that some people, probably in the neighborhood of 50% of people who are exposed to trauma eventually in time and work, later go on to develop increased self-confidence, commitment to some kind of advocacy work. Uh, they, it pivots their life and it can take many forms, but it's not ruination. In other words, the, the message here is that PTSD does not equate with mental illness. It does not equate with doom and gloom, that uh, at least 50%, if not more, people go on and do something positive with their experience. Uh, some an example might be John. Um, what's the name of his? He was the one who developed the uh, children's network for exploited children, missing and exploited children. Uh, his son Adam was murdered. I know who you're talking and, about, but for some reason the name escapes me. Uh, yeah, um, he's real famous for it. Actually, can, actually, he also ho- he was hosting the America's Most Wanted. John Walsh. John Walsh. Yes. And so he became an advocate and was instrumental in setting up that mechanism to trace people, children who were exploited and missing. He turned, he pivoted his experience into something positive. Another one is a man I interviewed whose son was murdered. His 16-year-old son was murdered his second day on the job in a botched robbery, standing outside the restaurant waiting for his ride home from work. The guy was devastated. He worshipped his kid. And he ended up writing a very good book called What to Do When the Police Leave. And it's written for homicide survivors basically to say, okay, they've come, they've given you the death notification, which often does not happen in person. But when it does and they leave, what do you do then? What's the next thing you should do? Right. Most, you know, most people have no clue. So it's kind of like a small manual in step A, step B, step C. And it sold over 40,000 copies. So his advocacy took him in that direction. Another man I interviewed for my podcast, uh, Nick Ruggiero, is a former police officer who has become an advocate to speak out against suicide on the, on the job or because of the job and the importance of having backup in the ranks 
right. in your work in the work that you do. So these are all examples of people who have tried to make lemonade out of lemons. And at least 50, maybe 60 percent of people who are exposed to trauma do that. And that's the positive thing that can come out of it that I I hope is the good news that can come from this. Right. You yourself wrote a book, actually, about I your did. experiences. I did. I did not want to write it for a long, long time. In fact, as I indicated earlier, I did not talk about it for 30 years. But some events happened which changed all that. And I finally decided to sit down and write it. It took me six years. I read I, and when I wrote the book, I designed it in such a way that I wanted to, on the one hand, be as subjective as I could so that people could walk through it with me as if they were inside my head so that they could see what I saw and hear what I heard and feel what I felt, know my thoughts. But on the other hand, I also wanted it as accurate as I could make it. So I read like 11 pounds of court testimony. I went back twice to Detroit to view all the places in the book with a accompaniment of one of the police officers that was involved. He was very gracious to me. I interviewed people. I looked at old microfiche newspapers. I looked at old photographs. I even interviewed people that I hadn't spoken with before, like some of the old high school friends of my husband, because I indicated earlier he was a lot older than me. So I, I tried to make it accurate, but subjective. And it took me six years and I finished it. It's now available in print. Kindle and a, a, man, a man from Detroit volunteered, an audio engineer volunteered to make it an audio book if I would fly to Detroit to, uh, to speak it, which is very generous. I mean, you're talking seven to $10,000 worth of work that he donated to me. He was very nice about it. So I went out last September and did that. It was very dehydrating. I didn't appreciate how dehydrating narrating a book can be, but I... I liked the experience. He made it very comfortable. It's called A Life Divided. My intention in writing it was to speak to and to speak for other homicide survivors because there is such little information and resources out there. There are occasional books you'll see by family members to talk about the death of somebody in their family, but they're not trained in science of behavior. And vice versa, you'll find people who are trained in psychology or psychiatry or social work who do research in the area, but have never experienced it personally. So I tried to pull both of those together to write the book. Yeah, was it cathartic for you? No, I don't think so. And the reason I say that is because that's why I took 30 years break. I wanted to get my ducks in order before I set pen to paper. I did not want it to be cathartic at the expense of the reader. I wanted to bring to them my best and to have perspective, to stare it down and study it completely before I even started chapter one. So it was, there was no real revelations in writing it. It was, I wanted to have some objectivity and distance so that I could reach out and touch other people who don't have identical circumstances to my situation, but enough that they could relate to it. You had some encouragement. Yeah, they need that. They Because over the years, I was asked questions that surprised me in some ways, like, is, like, is having nightmares a sign of mental illness? And I'm going, no, it's a sign you're healing. <laughs> you should welcome them, actually. They're not pleasant, but it's a positive thing. Yeah. And I would also drill in them the importance of getting their physical health together. That's the first thing people should do is go see a physician because they're likely not eating, not sleeping, 
They could develop clenching their jaw and grinding their teeth, stomach problems, high blood pressure, all kinds of things can evolve from it. And they need to have an expert, a professional to help them that way. So I thought this kind of information is pretty basic, but people don't know it, you know, and they'll go on for years and years not knowing it when they don't have to be suffering to that degree. Well, unfortunately, in this day and age, the majority of individuals don't really, at least in our environment, is one of those things that's not talked about and people don't talk about it enough. Um, that's one thing that I've found in my podcast. I've learned that the conversation about death and death and dying, no matter what form it takes, a lot of people have a difficulty in discussing that for whatever reason, whether they feel it's taboo or whether or not they feel from a religious perspective, they're supposed to not basically raise the thought of the dead, you know, so many, many different aspects of it. And I believe that um, it we need to have a deeper conversations in regard to that because it can help people move forward in a positive way. Right. Our culture does a superbly bad job of helping people with death Absolutely. from any cause. Other cultures don't feel that way. There's some extreme reactions that they have, like keeping the deceased in the house with them for years and years. We don't go that far, but some cultures do. And we don't. We isolate it. We outsource it. We don't want to deal with it. And that's, I think, even more the case if it's a violent death. Yeah, I think it kind of it kind of put a wall up there, and it, you know, sometimes it's hard to get over that wall. It is, and yet that's the key, is to collaborate. The, the very key is the importance is collaboration with other people that have traveled your path. When I started my podcast, it was eye-opening to me because I felt like I'd found my tribe, so to speak, people that knew what I'd been through, that understood it completely, that I don't expect other people to get if they haven't been through it themselves. Well, you had a relative help you, kind of inspire you, um, had, that has a unique background uh, that helped you inspire your podcast, don't you? Yes, she did. She uh, is a the owner of crime scene cleanup company called Diligent Decon. She lives out of South Carolina and she came up with the idea and I'm like, ah, podcast? I said, I don't know anything about the, like, the wherewithal, the hard wiring, the electronics, pop filters, all that. So I kind of put it in the back of my mind, but I reached out to a, a podcaster that I had known from being on his show, Javier Leveda. He has the podcast called Pretend. He was very generous with his time and he helped me gain my confidence and try a few things and it was hit and miss, but it's been over a year now and it's heard in 10 countries and I'm enjoying it. It's I'm admiring the people I interview. I'm finding that there are so many survivors out there podcasting opens up a whole new world to people. They, they yes. communicate and to express and to talk and have conversations that they wouldn't have otherwise. Internet. No, and internationally. I mean, just yesterday I, I was on a show in Australia. And it's it's interesting when you can see that in some ways the world is smaller than you think, you know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And from here, you have you have nothing but to grow. See, you're going to grow. Right. You'll grow from that. How can somebody find more about your book and your podcast? I put everything in one place. It's pretty straightforward. It's uh, my webpage. It's www.jancantyphd.com. That's J-A-N-C-A-N-T-Y-P-H-D.com. And so when they hit on that, it'll the first thing that'll come up is the choice between book or podcast. And then it has other information connected in there as well. And I'll have those in the show notes for everybody so it's easy for you, for them to access or for you people to access. This is one more thing before you go. So before we end our conversation, do you have any words of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners in regard to anything we spoke about today or how any of those people who are experiencing 
or have experienced what you went through. One parting thought I'd like to emphasize is this, is that if you know somebody who's grappling with trauma, whether it's from rape, whether it's from homicide, house burning down, whatever it might be, the important thing to know is that they're going to get a swell of support and interest and help in the first couple weeks after the event happens. But after that, people gradually go back to their lives. And what people need is to know that you've not forgotten them. And if they're a homicide survivor, that means bring up stories that you know about, use their name with them, check in on the homicide survivor from time to time. Don't ask them, call, don't say to them, call me if you need something, because they don't know what they need. They're overwhelmed and disorganized and exhausted. Instead, say to them something like, you know, I'm going to help take your car in and get the tires rotated for you. Or I know your cat needs to go into the vets. Let me do that for you. I had a friend at work whose husband suicided and she was very concerned about the landscaping, the cutting of the grass this summer, that summer that he died. And so I arranged, I paid for her landscaping for the rest of the summer to have her grass cut. You'd think I'd given her a million dollars. That was the uppermost thing in her mind was how am I going to get the grass cut? And I think if I had said to her, call me if you need something, that would never have come up. But to notice, to look in on us, if you're close enough to the person, of course, to know what they need, go step up and do it. Don't just drop off a casserole dish and wave. That's not helpful. And the other thing is to just, if you're close enough again, just listen. There's no magic words. You don't have to worry about what should I say? What should I do? Just sit there with your mouth closed and your ears open and listen. Let them pour out their their thoughts to you and their feelings to you can be very helpful. Even if it's repetitive, they need to get it out and to have it shared. And there's so few people that are willing to take that time and have that degree of patience. But the good news is you don't need to have any special training, any special words. Just go there and sit and listen. It can be very helpful. Profound words of wisdom. <laughs> Dr. Kennedy, thank you very much for sharing your journey with, with us and, uh, and the audience. I really appreciate it. I think that uh, hopefully we've opened up some people's eyes and uh, their hearts in a better understanding of what somebody who has been a victim of having somebody or losing somebody to homicide. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.